thoughts are all against me I'm ready to go Burning it down They ain't noticed Till the temperature rose Bless the energy Then we erupt in a blaze Mama save us I swear the baby's lately crazy Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster And you're listening to Sorceress A weekly podcast of awesome Serialized urban fantasy fiction Written by amazing authors Performed for you by professional narrators And brought to you by SerialAudio.com It's totally binge-worthy Chapter 14 The Visions Company van was a Honda Odyssey with the company name and pictures of a couple of Tico's favorite girls plastered along both sides of it. Though it was a particularly dark desert night, it still bothered her to have the van be so memorable. There was little she could do about it, though, and she figured when all was said and done, it didn't really matter. She was driving fast on the southbound Interstate 15 toward Prim, a sign flashed by signaling the exit for Jean and the 161. Another fifteen minutes or so, and she'd be there. Then, she wasn't sure what would happen. Her first thought was to simply call the cops and have them raid the place. But then she remembered Tico saying these guys had an in with the police. She'd never dealt with guys like this, but you didn't work in the life without hearing about human trafficking. She'd heard more than her share of stories about cops showing up to lock up some traffickers and finding a bunch of dead girls instead. To these men, that was just cutting losses. Anger, something like madness, bubbled inside her, but she clamped down on it. She knew she would need it later more than now. She drove on, the only light streaking through the hard, chill night. Before long, she slowed and took the prim exit. Prim, Nevada was a small town that was just a few miles east of the Nevada-California line. It boasted a permanent population of just over a thousand people, but did a brisk tourist business thanks to a half-dozen or so casinos and resorts that were the lifeblood of the community. A lot of businesses had come and gone over the years, and at one time Tico had bought one of them for a song. His plan had been to use the warehouse space to start some kind of internet business, it had never gone any further than that. He had taken Aaron there on more than one occasion to talk about his big plans, so she found her way back with ease. She pulled the van into an alley a few blocks from the warehouse and shut off the engine. Out of habit, she checked her face in the rearview mirror. A thick purple bruise underscored her right eye, and her lower lip was split and swollen. Her ribs ached, though she didn't think they were broken. She looked and felt like hell, but this wasn't the worst beating she'd ever taken. Erin shook her head at that and quickly pulled her red hair into a ponytail. She secured it with a bright yellow scrunchie that she found in the glove compartment. Erin checked to make sure the gun was still in her waistband and the clips in her pocket. She wasn't sure why she was bringing them. It wasn't as though she needed them, but... She figured in a situation like this, it was probably better to have more than she needed. She got out of the van and pulled herself to a nearby rooftop. Two more pulls and she was on a roof overlooking Tico's warehouse. It was a large structure, larger than she remembered, and lights glowed from within the high windows. 
The street-level windows showed no light. Aaron figured whoever was inside had covered them up to keep anyone from spying on them. From what she could tell, the gathering was already underway. She didn't have a clear line of sight into the building, but she knew there were glass skylights on the warehouse roof. The problem was there were no working streetlights on the block, and the roof was shrouded in darkness and moonlight cast shadow. She could see well enough to teleport over, but she didn't know if there was a lookout hanging out in one of the darker spots. Aaron thought about it. If she was the one setting up the kind of thing that was going on in that building, she would want guys on the street keeping an eye out for trouble, but not so many that it looked out of the ordinary. A guy on the roof would probably look weird, so she wouldn't have put one there. Aaron thought back to Israel's words at the funeral about how Matt had died just doing what good people do. She nodded at the memory and pulled to the warehouse roof. As soon as she appeared, she turned in a slow circle, searching for gun-wielding guards or anything else that might give her away. Nothing crept out of the shadows at her, so she moved to one of the skylights and looked in. The building was laid out in an L shape. One of the legs was half again as wide as the other and had one wall dedicated to a small elevated office space. The skylight Aaron had chosen was above the point where the two parts of the L met. Below her, strong floodlights mounted on thick, bright yellow poles were shining onto a group of scantily clad young women who were lined up shoulder to shoulder. There were about eighteen of them, and Aaron recognized a few of the faces from Tico's computer. They all looked haggard and worn. Some of them were gagged, some had their hands tied together with thin cord. There were two men in the pool of light with them. One of them was a big guy in a black suit. He walked behind the girl slowly, obviously waiting for a chance to use the big cattle prod he held. The other man was smaller and walked in front of the girls with his back to them. His suit was so gray that it was almost silver and shimmered in the light as only silk can. He was talking and gesturing to the group of shadows that was gathered behind the lights, out of sight and unrecognizable. Aaron swallowed hard. There were a lot of guys down there, and most of them were probably armed. That didn't bother her so much, but the point of all this was to get those girls out of here, and getting them shot while she teleported all over the warehouse floor wasn't the kind of out she had in mind. She kept studying the scene while she mulled it over. The guys behind the lights were, without a doubt, the buyers. In her terms, these were the Johns. Most Johns in her experience had one thing in common. They generally wanted to get off without getting caught. That meant that if you shined a light on them in the act, they would run like hell. A plan started forming in her mind. She would have to be fast, which, honestly, wasn't a problem, but she would also have to make sure she didn't get disoriented. The ache in her side reminded her that her amazing new abilities would not keep a bullet from taking her out if she got shot. Still, though, her plan could work. Aaron took a deep breath, focused on the nearest floodlight, and pulled. She appeared next to the light exactly where she'd wanted. The man with the silver suit was in the middle of explaining that the girls were all disease-free. Since she had appeared on the buyer's side of the lights, he hadn't noticed her. Aaron heard a whispered, What is this? 
from one of the buyers before she spun the light on its adjustable mount and shouted, Smile for the camera, boys! She would have given anything to have actually had a camera at that moment. A dozen shocked, bewildered, and suddenly angry faces stared and blinked into the unexpected brilliance. Aaron pulled to the light farthest from the one she had spun and repeated the process, shouting, Come on, show me some hot and sexy. That was all it took. Hands went to cover faces and everyone ran for the door. Aaron smiled. They were like roaches when the kitchen light comes on. She heard the man in the silver suit shout something. She turned to face him. The look on his face was something she would never forget. His expression was some jumble of rage, disbelief, and terror. He stared at her with wide eyes and said, What the fuck is this? How did you do that? Why did you do that? Aaron had a comeback ready to go when the big guy pushed through the line of girls and said, Mr. Silver, what is it? Aaron looked at the smaller man in the gray suit. Mr. Silver? Seriously? Lewis, kill this pinch of puta. Silver reached into his jacket. Aaron smiled and pulled past the twenty feet that separated them. Silver froze when she suddenly materialized. She could have touched him and sent him flying around the room. Instead, she collected every ounce of rage and frustration that she'd collected that night into her right foot and kicked him in the balls hard enough to lift him onto his tiptoes. The man grunted and fell in a heap on the floor. Aaron wanted to take a second to enjoy that moment, but the one called Lewis came rushing toward her, bellowing like an angry bull. He came in too fast. There was no time for her to pull away. He hit her hard enough to lift her off the ground and knock her flat onto her back. Her head bounced against the concrete floor hard. The blow dazed her momentarily and the air rushed from her lungs. If there was one thing that had come out of her relationship with her late brother, though, it had been her ability to take a blow and shake it off to save her ass. She ignored the pain and gasped in a breath while rolling to one side. The cattle prod stabbed into the floor where her face had been with an electric hiss. Aaron rolled onto her back in time to see Lewis's heavy boot coming up to stomp on her head. Aaron looked out the skylight, focused, and caught the bottom of the boot as it came down. As soon as it touched her hand, Lewis disappeared. Aaron climbed to her feet. The pain in her ribs was a throbbing reminder that she really shouldn't pick fights with people who were two feet taller than her. Mr. Silver had rolled onto his knees and was struggling to rise. Aaron walked across the floor. The kneeling man looked up and started to reach inside his jacket again. Aaron was quicker. Tico's colt came to bear before Silver's hand was clear of his jacket. Don't bother, Aaron said. I'm not that good of a shot, but there's no way I'd miss from here. Take it out and toss it. Silver did as she said and sent the pistol sliding into the shadows. The rage in his expression had taken a back seat to the disbelief and terror. What the fuck are you? What did you do to Lewis? Aaron sighed. The adrenaline was draining away and a heavy fatigue followed in its wake. She half laughed. That's a really good question, Silver. The first one. As for Lewis, he's probably on the ground by now. Not really sure where, though. Want to find out? Silver's head shook in a terrified, stuttering motion. Didn't think so, she said. She nodded toward the girls. 
So what you doing? This isn't what it looks like, Chica. Aaron hurt all over. She was exhausted. Despite these facts, though, Silver's response irritated her to the point that she vanished, reappeared next to the man, and slapped him across the side of his head with the pistol. It wasn't hard enough to knock him out, but she opened a deep cut above his left eye. Really, Silver? Because what it looks like is that you were about to auction off these teenage girls to a bunch of rich sickos. I don't see a whole hell of a lot to contradict that. The real question is, she pointed the pistol at his head like an executioner, why shouldn't I just blow your sick fucking head right off? Silver had raised his hands to protect his head as though they could stop the bullets he was certain were coming. Aaron thumbed back the colt's hammer. Are you an angel? Aaron's head snapped up at the words. They'd come from a girl who had stepped away from the group and was watching her exchange with Silver. Though haggard and wearing a dirty set of lingerie, she had strong, dark eyes and hair the color of dark chocolate. She looked like she might be the oldest among the girls, 18 or so. Are you? The girl repeated. An angel, I mean. Aaron smiled and felt an unbidden and confused tear in her eye. No, honey, I'm a long way from that. The girl nodded and seemed to consider the statement. Then you must stop what you are doing. Aaron blinked at her. What? Look, whatever your name is, he's an evil man and deserves what he gets. Just don't watch, okay? My name is Malena, and I know he is evil. He raped me. Aaron turned a to gaze toward Silver that could have frozen a river. Well, that makes this easier, she whispered. That is not for you, the girl said. I am his victim. His punishment is mine to choose. Aaron thought about that. She thought about Tico and the end his choices had led him and her to. She looked up at Milena. You know what? You're right. Do you want to do this? She shook her head. No, but he deserves to be punished. What did you have in mind? Milena held up a finger for her to wait and then disappeared into the light beyond the floodlamps. A few seconds later, she returned holding a length of metal rebar about two feet long. I saw this when they were bringing us out, she said. She nodded at the girls, her eyes carrying all the meaning she needed. Aaron half smiled. All right, then. And so they came, one by one, and took turns giving back some of the pain that they'd been given. When it was over, Silver was lying on his side, alive but bloodied and alternating between groans and sobs. His gray suit was torn and spattered with dark stains. The last girl walked away and dropped the dark rebar. It clattered to the ground in front of Aaron and Milena. Why not just kill him? Aaron asked. Milena was quiet as she considered it. I grew up in Mexico and Los Angeles, she said. I never lived anywhere where people were good to one another. Someone told me once, though, that we must strive to fight our enemies without becoming our enemies. We must always fight to be better than they are. I didn't do it because it's what he would have done. Aaron looked the younger woman over and then shook her head. I don't know if I can do that. She walked over and knelt down beside Silver. 
You hear that? She said. My friend over there is a much better person than I am. I'm still inclined to put a bullet or three in you. I decided it was her call, though, but listen up. I'm going to keep an eye on these girls. Anything, and I mean anything, happens to them, and I'll come for you. You hear me, Silver? You've seen what I can do. The face that turned up to look at her was battered and swollen. What caught Aaron's attention, though, what made her start in surprise, were his eyes. The contacts he must have been wearing were gone, knocked out by one of his victim's blows, and the eyes that stared back at Aaron were the color of new rust with straight lines of black radiating out from the iris. The pupil was a horizontal slit. What? he whispered as bloody spittle dripped in long strings from his swollen lips. What bloodline are you? Aaron stood up quickly and took a step back. She turned to Milena. What did he say? the younger woman asked. Nothing. We need to go. I've got a car a few blocks over. Was it about how you move without moving? she said. Aaron locked eyes with Milena. You can't tell anyone, she said. None of you can. It would be dangerous for you. She didn't strictly know if that was true, but it sounded good. Milena shrugged. Who would believe it? Besides, we owe you everything. I don't think anyone who saw you will have a problem keeping it to themselves. Aaron nodded, and they started hustling the girls out of the warehouse. Outside, the desert was cold, and it wasn't long before the girls were shivering. It took Aaron a few minutes to regain her bearings from street level, but she managed to get them to the van. When they arrived, she and Milena looked at each other. We have twice as many people as that thing is meant to carry, Aaron said. Milena nodded. See, I guess we just have to enforce a stereotype for a little while. Aaron leaned against the van and closed her eyes. She was so very tired. I don't know where to take any of you. Milena turned and started talking with the other girls in hushed Spanish. After a minute, she touched Aaron's shoulder. She hadn't quite been asleep, but close enough that she jumped a little at the touch. One of the girls knows a safe place in Victorville. She says we can call the other's families from there. Do you have the keys? I can drive. Where's Victorville? About two hours west of here in California. I know the way. Aaron's first instinct was to tell her that she was fine and could drive them no problem. The weight of her eyelids, though, quickly convinced her otherwise. Fine, she said as she handed the keys to Milena. But don't get us pulled over. Getting the girls in the van took some planning and a lot of people sitting on laps and squeezing into tight spaces, but they managed it. Before long, they were moving through the dark streets. Milena was behind the wheel with Aaron in the passenger seat with one of the younger girls in her lap. The girl didn't speak any English, but after they had been on the road a few minutes, the girl gave Aaron a quick peck on the cheek and said, Gracias. Aaron looked at her and smiled when she recognized her as the face she'd seen on Tico's computer in those final moments. Tears came unbidden to Aaron's eyes, and she nodded. The girl laid her head on Aaron's shoulder and started playing with her hair in short, gentle strokes. Aaron laid her head back against the headrest. By the time they reached the interstate, she was sound asleep. Chapter 15 
The first thing he noticed as he came back to himself was the thick bits of fur caught between his teeth. Israel sat up and was blinded by a sun that seemed far too bright. He held his hand up against the glare. He could hear a stream gurgling over stones nearby. Cool air moved through a grove of tall pines with a static whisper. Brown pine needles were stuck in patches to his chest and hands. Stuck there, he noticed, because they had gotten caught in the layer of dried blood and gore that stretched from his fingertips to his elbows. He lowered his hand and looked down at himself. The sun was still too bright, but so long as he kept his face turned from the sky, he could see well enough to make out details. His shirt was drenched in blood and bits of flesh and fur. His eyes scanned the area and found the source. A deer carcass, its antlered head torn from its body and its rib cage opened to the too bright sky was only a few feet away. Mentally, Israel was repulsed, so much so that he took a step backwards and slipped on the carpet of pine needles and fell on his butt. He sat there, staring at the carnage and waiting for his stomach to roll over and dump its contents into the grass. There was no nausea, though, no physical reaction at all. While his logical mind gibbered and fought with the impossible reality he found himself in, his body remained motionless and content. Without needing it, he took in a deep breath. The anguished, frustrated scream that came out after surprised him. Israel sat that way for a long time, staring at the blood and bone, listening to the wind and water. He told himself over and over to focus. Eventually, he succeeded. He got up and walked to the stream. It was wide and clear, and he washed in it, stripping down and getting as much of the blood from his clothing as he could manage. He rinsed out his mouth and even drank some of the cold water, though he felt no thirst. Habit, he supposed. When he was finished, he draped his clothing over some branches so it could dry. His sneakers and socks were relatively clean, but he washed them anyway. This done, he sat down with his back against a thick pine and closed his eyes. He wasn't tired, not at all, but the sun was just so damned bright. Scents drifted on the wind, things he couldn't identify that were sweet and musky. He listened to the world around him and tried to recall how he'd gotten wherever he was. His thoughts were groggy like he was hung over, but as things started coming back to him, he grew more alert. Stone and the twins had released him, he remembered that. Then he had started running and had jumped so far, and then he had run into the guys with guns. Guns. Israel's eyes popped open and he ran his hands over his chest. He remembered getting shot. He remembered getting shot a lot. There were no wounds, though, just smooth brown skin and the minimal chest hair he'd always had. He leaned his head back against the tree and closed his eyes again. The fight replayed in his mind. Had he really thrown a full-grown man around like a basketball? Bullets had hit him. He was certain of that. It hadn't hurt, though. Rather than pain, he remembered a growing hunger, a need like he had never known before. He remembered it overwhelming him. Then he'd opened his eyes here. The deer carcass flashed through his mind along with the stake bones in the cell back at Silver Sky. The video Warburton had shown him played across the big screen in his brain. 
so that was it. He had to eat or he turned into that thing in the video. Getting hurt, using his new strength, these things made the hunger grow until he lost himself. He wondered what would have happened if he had come across a bunch of campers instead of a deer. Would he have woken to a different kind of carcass then? He pushed that thought away. There was no point in it, no point in speculating. This was how it worked out, and this was what he had to deal with until he could get back to Allison and Stone. That might not be as easy as it sounded, though. He was pretty sure that he hadn't killed any of the soldiers that he'd encountered, but he knew he'd hurt a couple of them pretty badly. What had John called them? The Weird Shit Squad? Yeah, those guys would probably be looking to deal Israel more than a little payback. If they were anything like the cops back in Chicago, they would be looking at all his known associates. In this part of the country, that meant the people back at the Sentry Group. The plan had been for him to go north until he hit a road and then take a right. He gritted his teeth in frustration. He wasn't even sure where he was. He didn't know how long he'd run before he'd caught the deer. Had he crossed the road and it was behind him now? Which way was north from here? He was suddenly aware of how much he took street signs for granted. Israel continued thinking through his problems and options without moving. He noticed that he never had to shift position or move his limbs because they had grown stiff. When he opened his eyes again, he squinted against the light and saw his shirt catching the light breeze completely dry. The jeans and shoes were still damp, but he dressed anyway. His shirt was tattered with bullet holes, but he figured there was nothing he could do about that, and he didn't want to leave it behind to mark his passing. He looked around carefully. He knew he had to get moving. If the WSS was looking for him, then sitting still would just make it easier for them. Which direction, though, was a question he couldn't answer. The stream continued its trickling song while he thought. Then he remembered hearing someplace that one of the things you should do if you ever got lost in the wild was to follow a stream or river. He couldn't recall why, but he was pretty sure that was the rule. So, with no other plan, he shielded his eyes and started walking. It was, all things considered, a pleasant walk. There was relatively little underbrush in this part of the forest, and more than once he came across some animal or another that bolted from his path. For some reason, he thought there would be more birds chirping, but he heard none. He wondered if he had anything to do with their absence. He walked for over an hour before stopping. He wasn't tired, but rather wanted to take a moment to look around again. Following the stream wasn't working out the way he'd hoped, but then again, maybe he was just being impatient. After a few minutes, he continued moving through the forest. The stream continued to babble, branches cracked and broke beneath his feet, honeysuckle and musk drifted in the air, and the sun, damned bright as it was, continued to shine. It was, in all, a beautiful day. It became even more so when he heard the sound of a car passing from farther up the stream. He sprinted at the sound, easily dodging or jumping over obstacles. He couldn't help but grin at how effortless it was. He stopped when the small rise that led up to a road came into view. The stream continued on under a small bridge that showed its age. Israel started to run again, but then stopped. He realized that running like that, jumping higher than should strictly be possible, 
would use up whatever his body used for fuel now. He had to hold back or risk the hunger overwhelming him again. So he walked the distance at a normal pace and climbed the berm up to the road. It was the kind of backcountry road that rarely saw a maintenance crew, which was fine since it rarely seemed to see any traffic either. He couldn't find any signposts or anything to give him any idea where he was, so he just turned left and started walking again. He'd been walking for maybe a half hour before he saw any cars. The first was an old pickup that didn't even slow down as it passed. The driver, an old white guy in a green and yellow ball cap, gave him a sidelong glance as he went by. Israel ignored him. He never spent any time in the American South, but he imagined that even in the modern era, old southern white guys didn't usually stop to give a young black man a ride. He kept walking without tiring or even breaking a sweat. He found that odd. Thirst, muscle fatigue, perspiration, gastric rumblings, all the little biological signals that he had grown accustomed to over a lifetime were gone. The overall stillness of his internal workings was disconcerting, but also liberating. He had no idea how he was moving, but he kept moving nonetheless. He heard a car coming up from behind him in the far lane. It slowed, and then he heard the familiar short, sharp chirps of a police siren. He turned and faced the vehicle, making sure his hands were in plain view, which wasn't difficult since the sun was just behind the car and he had to shield his eyes from the glare. It was one of those plain, dark-colored, unmarked cars. The police strobes blinked from a narrow light bar mounted along the top interior of the windshield. The engine was left running as two officers got out and shut the doors behind them. There were two of them, one white, one black. They both looked to be in their forties with the thick builds that came with age and a career spent sitting in a car or at a desk. They both wore light-colored suits without jackets, which showed off the Glock pistols and badges they carried on their belts. Gray was just starting to show in the black cop's tightly trimmed hair, and the dark black-rimmed sunglasses he wore just seemed to highlight it. The white guy was a little shorter than his partner, but he carried himself like he was daring you to mention it. You can put your hands down, son, the white guy said. Sorry, Israel said. The sun is really bright and in my eyes. Put your goddamn hands down, boy, the black cop said. Oh, Israel thought to himself, it's like that. He lowered his hands and faced the officers. White guy studied him for a moment and then said, Gerald, does this fellow look familiar to you? Because he does to me. Why is that, son? Why do you look familiar to me? No idea, sir, Israel said. What are you doing out here all by yourself? The one called Gerald asked. It was hiking with some friends, Israel lied. I got separated and then I got lost. I'm just relieved I found a road. White guy nodded. Uh-huh. Thing is, son, you don't look dressed for hiking. Take that shirt, for instance. That's the kind of shirt somebody would wear in an office, not hiking, but it's full of holes. Strange color, too, almost like it's stained or something. Dan, I think he tried to wash something out of that shirt, something red. Dan never took his eyes off Israel. His hand stayed near the pistol clipped to his belt. I think you might be right, he said to Gerald. To Israel, he said, Son, why don't you put your hands on the hood of the car for me, nice and easy-like? Israel hesitated. 
Getting arrested wasn't a great turn of events. It would just be a matter of time before the WSS got word of it, and then it would be game over for him. On the other hand, he was reasonably certain he could just start running and the two overweight cops wouldn't be able to catch him. They might, however, shoot him, and he didn't know how much of that his body could take before he lost control of himself. He decided to play along for the moment. He put his hands on the car's hood. The one called Dan stood back with his hand at his hip while Gerald patted Israel down. Nothing on him, he said. What's your name? he asked Israel. Matt Sims, Israel said, his mind quickly putting together two recent names. Where's your ID, son? Dan asked. Israel shrugged. I left it in my friend's car back where we started hiking. I didn't think I'd need it in the woods. Dan nodded again. Uh-huh, and where was that? I'm not sure what it was called. I'm not from around here. I know it was part of the state park. That's a lot of acreage, Gerald said. If you're not from around here, where are you from? Chicago, just down visiting some friends. What's your friend's name? Malcolm, Israel said. Malcolm King. Malcolm King, Gerald said. Sure it ain't Malcolm King Jr. or maybe Martin X. I'm smelling a lot of bullshit coming off your story, boy. You know what else? The more I look at your shirt, the more I think you're walking around with a great big blood stain for all the world to see. Is that what this is? Israel hesitated. He knew a lot of cops, and he had heard them all tell stories about how they became finely tuned to the sound of lies the longer they were on the job. These guys had obviously been doing the job a long time. Look, he said, there was this dead deer, so you admit that is blood on your shirt, Dan said. Yeah, but no buts, son. Here in Georgia, that's what we call probable cause. Put your hands behind your back and we'll get this sorted out. Israel didn't move. He was confident he could get away from these two, but he wasn't sure if he could do it without losing control. Plus, if he had to fight, there was always the chance he would end up bleeding. Did he bleed any more? On them or something? Allison had told him that it was his body's fluids that passed on his necrophage DNA. These guys were really close, and Dan was ready to draw down on him. This wasn't the time to make a break for it. He ground his teeth together in frustration and put his hands behind his back. Gerald grabbed his wrists and clicked a pair of metal cuffs on him. You feeling all right, boy? Your skin's sort of clammy. You ain't gonna give me something, are you? I'm getting over a flu bug, Israel said. You guys might want to wear gloves. Thanks for the warning, Dan said. They led Israel to one of the sedan's back doors and put him in the car. The two police officers got into the front with Dan behind the wheel. A thick metal grate separated the back seat from the front. The front dash was an electronic mosaic of buttons and touch panels. There was a laptop mounted on a small arm in the middle of the dashboard, and Gerald started tapping at the keys while Dan started the car. Look, guys, this really is just animal blood. I tripped and fell into a deer carcass when I was walking. I didn't say anything because I knew how it'd look. Well then, Dan said, you ain't got nothing to worry about. We'll take you down the road here to the local station and you can contact your friends from there. If that's really just animal blood, you'll be out and gone by supper time. Look, can't we just... Israel started to say before Gerald interrupted him. Holy shit, Dan, look at this. He rotated the screen to face the driver. 
Israel leaned over so that he could also see the screen. He quietly groaned when he saw that half of it was filled with his face. Son of a bitch, Dan said, looking back at Israel. That's him all right. Boy, I knew you were full of it. it. says right here your name is Israel Trent and you're wanted by Homeland Security for suspicion of conspiracy against the government. What? Israel half shouted. Goddamn terrorist, Dan said. We just picked up a goddamn terrorist. I'm not a terrorist, Israel said. Shut up, Gerald said. Not another word out of your fucking terrorist mouth. I knew there was something off about you. Israel started to argue, but could tell from the glare the older man was giving him that it would be pointless. He leaned back in his seat and took a few seconds to process the turn of events. Obviously, the people looking for him had drummed this up and issued the warrant. They were federal law enforcement, so that would have been a breeze. He heard Dan on the radio telling someone they were bringing Israel in. It was most likely the police station. If they passed that on, then he knew he wouldn't be finished getting fingerprinted before the weird shit squad showed up to throw him back in a cage. Israel decided that was not going to happen. He'd been thinking about the cuffs already. His first inclination was to try and just snap them through main force, Superman style. But then he realized that it was much easier to just dislocate his thumbs. It wouldn't hurt and, as near as he could tell, wouldn't impair his ability to use his hands once he reset them. So he did this as quietly and stealthily as he could. The cuffs slipped over his hands, but he kept them behind his back while he reset the joints. The entire process only took a few seconds, and all he felt was the pop of the joints as they moved in and out of place. Dan and Gerald were busy talking about what a big arrest they'd just made. Israel took a moment to examine his options. A plan formed in his mind, and he hoped against hope that he was as strong as he thought he was. Moving fast, he spun lengthwise in the seat, braced one hand on the door behind him, the other in the iron grate, and kicked at the backseat door with both feet. The first kick badly warped the door and the plexiglass plane that served as its window. Air whistled into the cabin as Gerald and Dan both shouted in surprise. Israel's second kick flung the door open hard enough that the hinges cracked. Israel scrambled for the door and leaped onto the roadside. He hit hard and rolled, but felt no pain. The police car skidded to a stop, leaving a long line of smoking rubber in its wake. By the time Gerald and Dan exited the car, Israel was out of sight and sprinting through the trees. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sorceress as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free 
and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Cause we warriors. Cause we warriors. Let's go. Let's go.